For Tuesday, July 14th, 2020, this is Did You Wash Your Hands? We're a podcast from WABE answering the questions everyone's asking during the COVID-19 pandemic. I'm health reporter Sam Whitehead. Today, an abstinence-only approach to stopping the spread of an infectious disease has many shortcomings. People get really tired of being told that they can't do things that make them happy. We need to figure out ways to, you know, meet people where they are and try and make sure that they understand risks and do everything they can to decrease those risks. Dr. Eric Kutcher, an internal medicine resident at NYU Langone Health, joins me to discuss what the HIV epidemic can teach us about living safely with COVID-19. That's next. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Support for WABE's local coverage on maternal health and mortality comes from Georgia Health Initiative, whose mission is to inspire and promote collective action that advances health equity for all Georgians. Learn more at georgiahealthinitiative.org. The HIV epidemic can teach us a lot about how to handle the coronavirus, especially how to carry on our lives while minimizing risk to ourselves and others. So writes Dr. Eric Kutcher. He's an internal medicine resident at NYU Langone Health and recently had an article published with co-author Dr. Richard Green in the Journal of the American Medical Association's Health Forum. The big takeaway? An abstinence-only approach to the coronavirus isn't possible for everyone. Dr. Kutcher joins me now for more. Thanks so much for speaking with me. Yeah, my pleasure. I want to start just by talking about this this connection that you lay out in in your piece between the novel coronavirus and HIV. You say there are a lot of parallels here. Just to to get us started, lay out what those parallels are for me. Yeah, definitely. So, uh, you know, before going into medicine, I was an HIV test counselor um, and studied the history of HIV. And so I think in terms of the parallels between both of them, they're both a brand new virus coming to hit cities in particular and causing a big change in terms of how we perceive our lives and the risk that's associated with everything that we're used to doing. And so, you know, coronavirus is transmitted more through airborne droplets and HIV is transmitted mostly through blood and uh, semen and some other fluids as well. And so the actual method of transmission is quite different. But in terms of the impact and how jarring it is to have this new virus in our lives, there are actually a fair number of similarities. What have we really learned from the decades of work that the medical community has done with HIV that you think is really applicable to COVID? So I think the first thing that we really learn is individual behavior and tolerance for abstinence. So 
In the beginning of uh, the HIV pandemic, everybody was horrified of sexual activity and of all sorts of things that could transmit HIV. Over the past 30 years of the HIV uh, epidemic, we've learned that people tend to not be very good at abstaining from all activity that brings them meaning and purpose. And instead, um, that the best public health strategies focus on trying to reduce the risk itself that's associated with disease. And so um, I think that that's one of the biggest lessons that we can take away from the pandemic is trying to figure out how to live a new normal, how to continue doing behaviors that bring us satisfaction and bring us purpose while also staying safe. And I think from a public health messaging perspective, what we've learned is that people get really tired of being told that they can't do things that make them happy um, and that we need to figure out ways to you know, meet people where they are and try and make sure that they understand risks and do everything they can to decrease those risks while you know, still having some degree of happiness. It's interesting, this this idea of, of, of abstinence, because we hear it so much when we think about sexual behavior. But really, what we've kind of done as a society is abstained from our everyday lives over the last few months in, in very large ways to stop the spread of this virus. I think that's exactly the case, right? When people are quarantined at home, when they can't go to the gym, when they can't go see friends, when they can't, you know, go for dinner, and there's a huge abstinence of everything that you've been doing that meant the world to your life beforehand. And I think people are frustrated and, and question um, why they're doing that. And, you know, I think there's a time and a place for abstinence. And I think that at the beginning of the pandemic in New York, abstinence was 100% necessary. And I'll argue that now in places, particularly in the South, where numbers are going up, abstinence is probably going to be necessary again, too. But that when numbers come to a place where we are able to seek important, meaningful interaction without risking the entire health system collapsing, I think that's where individuals can choose to take a harm reduction approach to COVID. So let's talk about harm reduction, because I think for, for some people that might be kind of a, a, a new idea. Just basically explain to me what harm reduction is. Yeah, so um, harm reduction is a theory that abolishes the all or nothing approach to risk and disease and acknowledges that abstinence only is really not possible for everyone. Um, you know, the approach was originally uh, developed during the HIV epidemic, particularly for those with injection drug use, um, and looked at trying to answer a, a simple question, which is, in a world where our behaviors put us at risk for illness, how can we get the most satisfaction while minimizing our risk of disease acquisition or of spread? Um, and so for, you know, injection drug use, the answer actually wound up being a fairly simple one, which was don't share needles, use a fresh needle every time you're going to inject, um, and that that dramatically reduces the risk of HIV with injection drug use. I think for COVID, the question of, you know, what interventions decrease your risk and how can we reduce harm while still being around others um, is a little bit more complicated and nuanced. And I think the public health messaging that we've received is, you know, be six feet apart from each other, wear a face mask, try and stay outdoors. And I think that's generally right. Um, but I think that there are other components from harm reduction that fit nicely in, aside from the actual interventions themselves, that are important to think about when you're talking about uh, how to stay safe during COVID. We are all now, I think, thinking about risk in, in much more acute ways than, than we used to. What have we learned from the HIV epidemic about risk and, and really how to get people thinking about this in a smart way? Because for a lot of people, they haven't had to think about these kinds of risks before. 
Yeah, a hundred percent. I think, you know, for a lot of people, this is the first time that they think that their daily activities do bring them risk of disease. I think a couple of main things to talk about are privilege and consent. So I think from the HIV pandemic, we learned a lot about the idea that there are certain people who think that they are able to avoid um, risk of disease. And, you know, I think a good example of privilege would be in HIV is people who um, are heterosexual or in monogamous relationships um, or who think that um, HIV can't affect them in certain ways and therefore think that the pandemic only applies to people who are in non-traditional relationships or are LGBT or in some other area. I think privilege kind of in, in this context is very interesting in that it's for people who work from home, who think that, um, you know, why would you ever go out in public, um, who have support networks and who have the ability to really quarantine successfully. I think for a lot of minorities, what we're seeing is that their work requires them to go and be exposed to COVID. Um, this is a very different reality than people who, who tend to be able to successfully quarantine. And I think privilege is one of those things that we've really learned, which is, um, you need to to be aware that the benefits that you have in your social structure are not the same that other people have in the decisions that they make. So Eric, you also mentioned consent. Um, Talk with me a little about that. Consent is another really important thing to talk about. So with HIV, the context of, of risk sharing is in a very different context where um, it's usually something much more intimate, such as sharing needles or in sexual activity. And you can explicitly discuss and obtain consent from those around you. Whereas with COVID, it's a little bit more complicated because the choices that you make in terms of wearing a face mask, not wearing a face mask, and where you go, those influence others who you may not have the chance to talk to and who may not be consenting to your behaviors. And so I think, um, you know, what we've learned is that people who are um, disenfranchised tend to not be able to vocalize their needs um, and not have those listened to. And so when it comes to COVID-19, wearing a mask in public when you're around others is what you need to do because they can't give you consent to take it off. But if you're at home with one of your friends and both of you discuss it and decide that you're okay taking the risk off and being indoors without masks on, it's up for two consenting adults who are aware of the decision to take that risk. For people who aren't used to thinking about this kind of risk, how do you get them to actually start acknowledging that this risk exists? So I think the unfortunate reality is that the disease has spread and it's coming to all communities across the country and we're going to see the risk. So, you know, you're, you're talking to me and I'm here based in New York and I've worked in the ICU here for the past six months on and off. And the COVID-19 virus causes really bad disease. It causes death and, um, and morbidity and mortality among people that I've seen directly. And I think people often, unfortunately, tend to not believe things that aren't in their backyard. And I wish that that we could, you know, sound the alarms and and share the information so that people didn't have to see it in their backyard. But what we see right now is that it, it's spreading throughout the country. And so, unfortunately, what I think that means is that people who were denying that COVID-19 was a problem are soon going to see it closer to where they are, where it's going to be harder for them to deny that as a complete risk itself. And then with that knowledge, hopefully they'll be able to make more informed decisions. With something that is so new, you know, this virus has only been with us for about six months. How can we really establish effective harm reduction practices if we're still learning so much about this virus and if this is a virus that continues to change? 
Definitely. So there's a lot of information that we still need to learn about COVID, and I'm excited to hear all of it as it comes out. But I think in terms of risk, the the most important thing that we know right now is that the virus likely lives in the air for about up to three hours um, or even longer in inside space, and it rapidly goes away if you're outside and there's good circulation. And so I think that in terms of making a harm reduction policy, that is all you need to know up front to have a safe policy, which is being inside is dangerous. Being outside is less dangerous. If you're inside, minimize the amount of people there and wear face masks to decrease the spread. And if you're outside, face masks decrease the spread too. And so I think in terms of the amount of knowledge that we're going to get moving forward, there's definitely going to be a lot of really interesting information that we're going to find out. Um, for instance, early on in the pandemic, there was a lot of concern that surfaces could carry COVID. And the more data that's come out, the more we know that that may or may not be as important as the aerosolation of the virus. And so, you know, we will get information and harm reduction approaches may evolve as they should. But I think right now we have enough data to know what the most dangerous activities are and what the safer ones are. There, I think, is this implicit assumption with this idea of harm reduction that some people are more comfortable with higher amounts of risk than others would be. What's maybe the best way for someone to navigate that? Because, you know, it's one thing to assume that everyone is on the same page about how much risk they're willing to expose themselves to. uh, But that's not the case. Right. It's not the case. And I I think a lot comes into it, right? So the risk factor for a 18-year-old versus an 88-year-old is going to be very different in terms of how likely they are to die of this disease. And so what I recommend for everybody is before, you know, meeting up or coming up with any sort of plans, talking explicitly about it. So for instance, what I counsel my patients is if they're going to meet up with someone either for a date or for coffee to just hang out, um, you talk about what things you're comfortable with. You can say, do you want to meet in the park? Do you want to meet inside. You can verbalize your own actual preferences during this time and kind of find a middle ground. And what you'll find is that throughout your friend group, there often are a wide variety of preferences and practices. And so, you know, with one friend, maybe you'll meet outside and you'll stay six feet apart and you'll take your mask off. With another friend, maybe you'll sit next to each other, but wear your mask. Um, And so people are going to have different degrees of comfort. And the only way that you can both leave an encounter feeling good about the level of risk you both just encountered is by talking about it beforehand. And I think communicating it before you even meet up is very important because what we see right now is that, you know, the first few seconds of an encounter really dictates a lot about what's going forward. So handshakes, hugs, right? Those are things that we're used to doing that if you don't talk about it beforehand, become really awkward because somebody may not be comfortable with the degree of risk you're putting them at. And so I think just including it in your conversation when making plans is the best way to address it. And, and that makes me think about the role of kind of stigma and, and maybe even shame here. You can look on social media, you can look on, on TV, and, you know, it's not hard to find footage of stations and reporters shaming people for being on the beach or being out in public and doing things that, that they deem unsafe. So, so talk with me a little about that. I don't think shame works. I think we learned that from HIV, right? Um, the best way to get a policy that works is to talk about risk and understand that different people have different degrees of, of risk tolerance and accept that. I think shaming usually finds one group of people that you put on uh, as, as the bad guy. And I know in New York, for instance, there were a lot of pictures that were circulating on social media of gay men and, you know, the the... Um, Hell's Kitchen area being very close. But if you went throughout the rest of the city, there were people from other backgrounds who were doing the same thing who just weren't the the targeting of shame. And so I think usually we use scapegoats um, as people to talk about. 
when those aren't the only people doing the behavior. And I don't think shame is a productive way to get people to change their behavior. I think, you know, having a logical conversation. Um, so, you know, for instance, if I go to a, a store and the person who is uh, serving me, uh, like I is not wearing a mask. I always ask them to please put the mask on. I think that is a much better conversation and a much better way of addressing it than taking a picture of them and posting it online and trying to shame the person. And so I think from the history of HIV, what we know is that only having people feel empowered to take uh, risk-modifying behaviors that decrease their risk and the risk to others is the best way to do it. So we've transitioned dramatically as a, a society. You know, when HIV first became a problem in, in New York, there's a lot of stigma around it, um, and people were really ashamed to share their status. And now we have people who are HIV positive who are willing to post about it and to share their status before they meet up with people. And I think we can all agree that that's a dramatically better way of dealing with this than just assuming or putting, making somebody feel bad for uh, the, the risks that they have. Here in Georgia and across the country, we're seeing a bunch of states that are now maybe approaching situations that New York was in um, a few months ago. It makes me wonder what really is at stake here if we don't figure out some way to adopt the kind of approach that you and and others are are really pushing for. You know, y'all aren't the only ones who say, hey, harm reduction can have value here. What do you think about the real stakes being of us being unable to figure out a way to live safely with the coronavirus in the same way that we have learned to live more safely with HIV? Yeah, I think that's exactly the point, right? So, you know, being a doctor in the ICU in New York during the peak of the pandemic, I can't even tell you how many patients I had die and not have family members able to come see them. Um, and it's awful. It's devastating for the families. It's devastating for us. Um, it's not a sustainable solution, right? Um, not having enough ICU beds to care for patients is not something that any of us can tolerate. That's not something that we as a society can find acceptable. And so my hope is that as we move forward, the lessons that we learn from these peaks that we face and from how horrible they are and unacceptable they are is that we don't want to get there ever again and that we will take day-to-day activity reforms in order to make sure that we don't get there again. Um, because I don't think any of us want to live in a world where we're not able to say goodbye to our grandparents or to even our parents or even our children just because of the spread of disease and the behaviors that we've participated in that make it so that the disease can spread faster. Dr. Eric Kutcher is an internal medicine resident at NYU Langone Health. Did You Wash Your Hands is a production of 90.1 WABE Atlanta, where ATL meets NPR. You can reach us at washyourhands at wabe.org. You can find all our episodes in your favorite podcast app, where you can also leave us a rating and a review. And you can find more stories on the coronavirus pandemic at wabe.org slash coronavirus. If you haven't recently, now might be a good time to go wash your hands. I'm Sam Whitehead. Thanks for listening. The world is full of mysteries. Are ghosts real? Is that yogurt expired? Hey, the unknown can be scary. But when you donate to WABE, you know where your money is going. 
Your gift supports the journalism that keeps you informed and the programs that pull back the curtain on complicated stories. Help us make the world less mysterious. Become a member now. Go online to wabe.org slash donate. And thanks.